Today we're going to consider one of the afflictions that most, if not all of us, have faced, are facing, or will face in the future. It's the affliction of doubt. Now you have to agree with me, this isn't the most popular of subjects for Christians to discuss. My guess is that most people who battle doubt seldom share that with others. And that's particularly true in the church. Have you ever wondered what would happen if on a Sunday morning, either in the service or maybe in a community group, somebody just raised their hand and said, I'm having a hard time buying that. What would go on with that? Uh, You know, to some Christians, doubt is just flat out unbelief. To others, it's the product of an honest, inquiring mind. Now, over the centuries, varying views of doubt have been expressed. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther once wrote, I have no greater enemy than doubt. He called it the master of uncertainty. The English poet Tennyson wrote, There lies more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than half the creeds. When you think about it, we can see how differing views about doubt grow out of differing backgrounds, differing temperaments. You know, some people can just accept truth without questioning, you know, with great faith, with great resolve. And others struggle for understanding and acceptance. Daniel Taylor wrote a book titled The Myth of Certainty. It's a book about reflective Christians. And in it, he asks a number of questions, including these. Are you, even after years of being a Christian, ever struck by the unlikelihood of the whole thing? Does one minute it seem perfectly natural and acceptable that God exists and cares for the world and the next uncommonly naive? Do you ever think those close to me would be shocked if they knew some of the doubts I have about my faith? He asks, how important is it for you to be certain about something before you act? He also asked, would it bother you more to be called a hypocrite or a cynic? Why? These are the questions of a reflective Christian. One who's able to carry on a mental dialogue with reality. One whose mind probes and searches and questions and even argues. Some of you are in professions where you're paid to question. I'm so indebted to Chuck Swindoll, uh, who spoke at several of our Christian embassy retreats, uh, who stimulated my thinking in a fresh way about this man, Thomas. But Swindoll writes, most simple-minded evangelical Christians struggle only with unanswered questions. The reflective Christian struggles with unquestioned answers. Now, we're in a series titled Conversations with Jesus. We started with Jesus' conversation with a religious scholar, one of the leading Jewish scholars of the day by the name of Nicodemus. And it was all about dealing with the subject of religion. Then we saw Jesus in a conversation with a woman of Samaria. 
And she was dealing with the emptiness in her life where she went to man after man to try to fill that void, but Jesus just pierced through that and brought her living water. Last week, it was Jesus with Mary and Martha and Lazarus as they were dealing in their lives with tragedy, and we saw what Jesus had to say to them and what he did. This morning, it's with a man named Thomas, a case study of doubt. In fact, we've derived from his name another title. What is it? Doubting Thomas. But you know what? I wonder if maybe he's got a bum rap. Maybe we've been too hard on him. You see, of all the disciples, he seems to be the most reflective. Thomas never pretended to be someone he wasn't. I mean, what you got was who he was. He simply said what he felt. I really don't think he would have made a good politician or diplomat. Now, we first encounter Thomas in chapter 11 of John's Gospel, the passage dealing with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So if you would take your Bibles and go to John 11, if you want to grab a Bible in front of you, page 1141, John chapter 11. Jerusalem and the surrounding area is not a safe place right now for Jesus and his disciples. And word comes to him that, their dear, that his dear friend Lazarus is sick. So pick up in John 11 verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, notice the disciples' response in verse 8. They said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Now, skip down to verse 11. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now, here's the loyalty that we see of Thomas. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Okay, a pessimistic loyalty. You know, our number's up, guys. We might as well go. Let's go with Jesus. Don't you love it when other people speak for you? Let us go. And let's go and die with him, not for him. Not that loyal. And then on to chapter 14. We have doubt expressed again. John 14, verse 1. Jesus is in the upper room and he says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. 
Now look at Thomas's response, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? See, there's just candid bewilderment here. Lord, you, you know, I lost you back at the leaving part. Never mind the coming back stuff. I, I just don't get it. I don't know where you're going. I don't know the way. And what's Jesus' response? Does he get all bent out of shape? You know, Thomas, Thomas, Thomas. What an idiot. I can't believe. I covered that last week. <laughs> Didn't you get, you know, get with the program, son. Does Jesus get all flustered and frustrated with him? No. He gives space. And he simply says, Thomas, I am the way. Do you realize that we have Thomas to thank for one of the greatest statements in all scripture? He's the one. You see, in Thomas, what we have is the honest expression of a searching heart. Now, let's go on to chapter 20. John chapter 20. And look, starting at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus shows up out of nowhere, right through the wall, and says, Shalom, peace. I mean, what an exhilarating thing that must have been to these disciples who, you know, for all of the terrible events of the previous days. Now, verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Thomas missed muster. He wasn't there for roll call. What, why wasn't Thomas in the room? What happened to him there? Well, I'll tell you what I think. I think the guy was in grief. Reflective Christians always feel things deeper and more painfully than others. I think Thomas is off the grid. I, I think he's out somewhere trying to figure this all out. He's trying to process what's going on. And, you know, and, and he's saying, where do I go from here? This is the anguish of a questioning heart of a reflective person. Verse 25, the other disciples told him, hey, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What's Thomas admitting? I need more proof. Your, your word just isn't enough. Read on. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, Thomas with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Over a week later, eight days. Would you, would you notice what Jesus did not do? He, he, he didn't rush over, you know, he didn't rush out after the first time to find Thomas. Oh, Thomas, I'm so sorry you weren't here. Listen, he let Thomas struggle. There is value in the struggle. Don't miss that here. There was value in the process. Jesus let him suffer and question. I know I've asked this question so many times, but I like asking it. How many of you here are middle children? Okay? We're fixers, aren't we? When there's a problem, we have to fix it. 
We just can't stand the thought that somebody's got a problem and they're struggling and we can't fix it. And in the church, so often our approach with people who raise struggling questions and issues is to simply try to give them pat answers, quick fixes, theological pablum. Look what Jesus does in verse 27. He said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. One of the greatest books, honestly, ever written was penned by John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. It was written when Bunyan was imprisoned a second time for preaching. The year was 1678. And in the book, there's this grand scene where Christian, this pilgrim, comes up the narrow road walled by truth and righteousness through the wicked gate on his way to the celestial city. And, and he comes to a great chasm, and, and it's got this burden strapped on his back. It's, it's a picture of sin. And when Christian comes to the chasm, he looks out across it and he sees a cross. And there's no one on it. And then below it, he sees the sepulcher, the tomb. The stone is rolled away. There is no one inside. And Christian says, thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this. Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must hear the burden fall from off my back? Must hear the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher. Blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. And he believed and sin fell. That which had burdened him all his life. That's Thomas here. That's Thomas. Life lived realistically would be life lived reflectively. May I ask you, how do you deal with your doubts? Is it simply to deny them? Is it, is it to cover them over with pious affirmations? Is it just to simply to try to keep busy so that you don't have to think about them, hoping they'll go away? Let me give you some suggestions. If you're a person here that's a reflective Christian and you wrestle with doubts, maybe these will help you to deal with that doubt. The first thing is to identify the cause or source of your doubt. What's causing your doubt? Where, where, where is it coming from? Why, why do I have doubts at times? As I, as I think about doubt, I've jotted down a lot of different things that may be causes Maybe multiple causes, but maybe some of those things that, that, are, that are causing the doubts that you're having. The first is my humanness. My humanness. As Guinness suggests that only God and certain madmen have no doubts. Humans are finite. We don't possess total knowledge. We, and therefore, the door to doubt is always open. People doubt what they don't understand. And they question what they do not know. Guinness writes, the root of doubt is not in our faith, but in our humanness. Then I think another cause is ignorance. Trust is based upon knowledge. 
And God is a person, and I believe you will trust him only as much as you find him to be trustworthy, as you believe that he is worthy of your faith. And then there's the complexity of life. Life is not simple. And, and pat answers do little but cultivate doubt and raise further objections. I think another cause is projection. You know, one's view of God is, is often an image upon which has been projected a flawed human image. Primarily and foremost, it, it, it seems that to come from our view of an earthly father. What was your father like? Most likely, your views of God have been deeply shaped by that. Was he dependable? Did he keep his word? Did he love you? Did you feel loved? Did you feel secure? Was your father approachable? Did you feel accepted? Can you see how the answers to those questions will affect the way that you view God as your heavenly father? We just sang a song a minute ago about our good, good father. But be careful on the projection that you've put up onto him from human to divine. Temperament. You know, people are wired differently. Have you noticed that? Some of you are by virtue of your personality question askers. You challenge everything. You accept nothing on face value. Everything is automatically under suspicion. For the others of you, God said it, I believe it, that's it. Now, if you're that kind of person, God bless you. But there are many that aren't. I think sometimes we forget the role of Satan, the enemy of our soul. Jesus said that the devil is the father of all lies. The Apostle Paul called him the deceiver of the brethren. Should you be surprised that a chief strategy that he would employ in your life as one of God's kids would be doubts? There's also sin, unconfessed sin, you know, whether moral or just plain unbelief, but over time becomes a fertile seedbed for doubt. Forgetfulness, failing to remember all that God has done for you. You know, forgetfulness often leads to ingratitude, which leaves the door open for doubt. Fear of giving up control. You know, many who fear losing control never make the decision on the rightful lordship of Christ in their life. And so they find themselves struggling over and over again with some of these questions, some of the doubts. They never settle the issue. Here's a big one, fluctuating emotions. A faith based primarily on feelings rather than on the truth of God's word is going to be very susceptible to doubt. Truth becomes based on how I feel rather than upon the facts. Here's one. I hadn't thought about this until this kind of triggered back up to me, but it's stages of life. There's a normal pattern of development. Dr. Russ Campbell, who is a very noted child psychologist and author, you know, would say that young people decide their convictions basically and usually between the ages of 18 and 25. If they don't do it then, often there's a crisis in their early 40s. 
Why does it seem that so many Christians want to bail out of their faith life, you know, in there as it gets folded into what sometimes is called the midlife crisis? And the question becomes, do I really believe all this that I learned growing up? Parents, listen to me, it's normal for your older teens and younger 20s kids to go through a questioning stage. Don't totally freak out over that. Okay? It's normal. It's a part of that. They aren't necessarily rejecting you or the things that you've taught them, but they're going through this differentiation process as they try to figure out, what do I believe? Your job is to build that strong foundation when they're young and growing up so as they go through this natural questioning time, they'll be able to fall back on the foundation. God can bring that back into their mind. Oh, yeah, maybe this is the framework for understanding. How about exhaustion and fatigue? Do you remember the legendary football coach Vince Lombardi who said fatigue makes cowards of us all? And at that, those times when you are emotionally and physically spent, those are vulnerable times for you. This is where the doubts may come in. You just need to be aware of that. Well, look back over the list. Take a moment to think kind of by way of self-evaluation, situational evaluation. As you think of times of doubt, or maybe you're going through a time of doubt right now in your life, or any of these contributing factors to that situation, humanness, ignorance, complexity of life, projection, temperament, Satan, unconfessed sin, forgetfulness, fear of giving up control, fluctuating emotions, stages of life, exhaustion, fatigue. So first, identify the causes, the sources, if you can, of your doubt. Then you know how to attack them. Here's a second suggestion. Ground your faith in biblical fact. Build a foundation based on what you do know. See, what stands opposite our doubt and difficulty in faith is the absolute faithfulness of God. So build this foundation on the promises of God in your life. Here are some of the promises that you can bank on. From Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, For he that is God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul writes in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's one of those verses you just have to write on the frontal lobes of your mind. If you're a person who, who constantly is going through this doubt, am I really saved or not? Does God love me? Have I been accepted on it? There is therefore what? No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, the end of the chapter. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did, Did you make a note on some of the things maybe Paul left out? I think he got them all covered. And if nothing else in that final statement, anything else in all creation. You cannot get away from God's love. If you are his kid, he loves you eternally. That's already set. 
I could go on and on, but I won't. You get the point. What's going to form the foundation of your faith? Second, be honest. Be honest with God. Be honest with yourself. You know, be willing and honest to face these doubts head on. Never dismiss their reality, nor refuse to look for answers. If you're a questioning person, if that more describes you today, and even maybe things you learned so long ago and you're thinking, I, I don't really know how they could be true. You know, we have a great thing for you. It's called Starting Point. It's a video-driven program with discussion that, 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 that is a safe environment to wrestle with these basic questions about God and his existence and Jesus and everything. Uh, we're going to start up another class after Easter. Good, good thing, if, if you're one of those right now today that's really wrestling with those things, get ready for that. It's a great thing to take advantage of. Here's another one. Doubt your doubts as much as you doubt your faith. Why are we so quick to, to, to doubt, you know, doubt our faith and then believe our doubts? You know, we've got to get over this. Again, I think much of the problem comes from focusing on feeling rather than thinking. And stay connected. Don't, don't isolate and insulate. Find a listening, non-judgmental ear. I think so often when we're overwhelmed with doubt, what do we do? We pull back. We're afraid of what other people are going to think of us if they know we're struggling through these doubts. But this is precisely the time when we need someone to come alongside, to listen, not judge, not preach at us, not even necessarily open the Bible to find every verse about what we're thinking about. But somebody that comes alongside and says, you know what, the process is okay. Keep going. God's here. He's going to help you through it. There's another one, I think Oz Guinness in his book, In Two Minds, the one that, that, that talks about this, but exercise the principle of suspended judgment. What do I mean? Be willing to accept mystery. You know, we're fallible. We're finite. You will never understand everything. If you did, you would be God. You know, so accept the fact that there are some things that will forever remain unknown, ununderstood. You just won't. But God calls us to faith, to trust and belief in him, not in our understanding. And there are times in life when we're going through these difficult times, whatever, you know, source, whatever it might be, where we need to suspend judgment and put our trust in the one who ultimately knows all the wise, even when we do not. And there's a willingness to say that I can live with that even if I can't understand it. I mean, frankly, people, there are things in our lives that happen with our loved ones and others. How do we explain the why? We don't. But we believe that God does know the why. The one who sees the beginning from the end. The one that Jesus said not even a sparrow falls to the ground, but that your heavenly father isn't aware of it. That's the one that we put our trust in even when we don't understand what's happening here. Let's, let's come back to Jesus' conversation with Thomas here. Thomas wrestled with his doubt. And when Jesus appeared to the disciples again, he was present. Now, lest you think Thomas has a heart problem, look, look at John chapter 20, and verse, verse starting with verse 28. Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. 
Did you know that you and I are in the Bible? We're right there. We're called those who have not seen. I wonder if maybe this is what the Apostle Peter remembers. When writing to troubled Christians, he says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Jesus didn't reprove him for his doubts. He simply said, Thomas, put your finger here in the mark of the nails in my hand. Place your hand over here at my side where the spear pierced me. Believe in me. His doubts were dealt with when he saw Jesus for who he was. If you happen to be here today and struggling with doubt, can I just say to you, don't give up. Don't give in. Keep walking with what you know to be true. Keep your mind engaged. Don't give in to your feelings. I want you to, I'm going to close and I want you to see what C.S. Lewis wrote. This is a letter that he actually wrote to Arthur Greaves in December 1930. You know, this, this is this great thinker. Um, look what he said. I think the trouble with me is lack of faith. I have no rational ground for going back on the arguments that convince me of God's existence. But the irrational dead weight of my old skeptical habits and the spirit of this age and the cares of the day steal away all my lively feeling of the truth. And often when I pray, I wonder if I'm not posting letters to a non-existent address. Been there? Identify? He says, mind you, I don't think so. The whole of my reasonable mind is convinced, but I often feel so. However, there's nothing to do but to peg away. One falls so often... One falls so often that it hardly seems worthwhile picking oneself up and going through the farce of starting over again as if you could ever hope to walk. Still, this seeming absurdity is the only sensible thing I do, so I must continue. God is faithful. If you will seek after him, he will in good time show himself to you that your doubts may be replaced with faith. And the more that we come to understand God and who he is and that he's a God that's worthy to entrust your life to, then, 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 we see our faith growing and we probably see ourselves doubting less. Not ever doubting less. There is none like him. He's the one that we go to. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I pray today for the person here that may really be struggling with doubt, how human that is. But would you, Lord, if they know you, if they've trusted in you, would your Holy Spirit lives in them, would you just help them work through the process? Give them the willingness to find a listening ear. Would they more than anything be driven to you? And Lord, would you reveal yourself through your word to them? Would you help them as they deal with their doubts? Lord, give those who don't seem to doubt compassion for those who do. Lord, may we be as a part of your eternal family, be involved in each other's lives to encourage towards faith. And Lord, would you just continue to be at work in us? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.